1952, just a few years after the publication of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis wrote a small essay as a preface to D.E. Harding's The Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth, A New Diagram of Man in the Universe. The essay is entitled The Empty Universe, and in this short but uh, very poignant essay, Lewis talks about how modern man has come to understand his place in the universe and the universe itself. Lewis writes, quote, The process whereby man has come to know the universe is, from one point of view, extremely complicated. From another, it is alarmingly simple. We can observe a single one-way progression. At the outset, the universe appears packed with will, intelligence, life, and positive qualities. Every tree is a nymph, and every planet a god. Man himself is akin to the gods. The advance of knowledge gradually empties this rich and genial universe, first of its gods, then of its colors, smells, sounds, and tastes, finally of solidity itself, as solidity was originally imagined. As these items are taken from the world, they are transferred to the subjective side of the account, classified as our sensations, thoughts, images, or emotions. The subject becomes gorged, inflated, at the expense of the object, end quote. Essentially, what Lewis is saying here is that we, in our advance of our scientific knowledge, have perhaps overcorrected ourselves in our understanding of the universe. Lewis is not arguing that we return to animism, the idea that uh, there are tree spirits and things of this nature. Lewis is not arguing that. He says, quote, There is, of course, no question of returning to animism as animism was before the rot began. No one supposes that the pre-philosophic humanity, just as they stood before they were criticized, can or should be restored. The question is whether the first thinkers, in modifying, and rightly modifying, them under the criticism, did not make some rash and unnecessary concession. It was certainly not their intention to commit us to the absurd consequences that have actually followed. This sort of error is, of course, very common in debate, or even in our solitary thought. We start with a view which contains a good deal of truth, though in a confused or exaggerated form. Objections are then suggested and we withdraw it. But hours later, we discover that we have emptied the baby out with the bathwater and that the original view must have contained certain truths for lack of which we are now entangled in absurdities. So here, in emptying out the dryads and the gods, which admittedly would not do just as they stood, we appear to have thrown out the whole universe, ourselves included. We must go back and begin over again, this time with a better chance of success, for of course we can now use all particular truths and all improvements of method which our argument may have thrown up as byproducts in its otherwise ruinous course. Lewis's thoughts about an empty universe actually began eight years previously in 1944, with the publication of his professional work, A History of English Literature from the 16th Century. In the preface of that work, Lewis talks about mathematics and how the 16th century birthed the idea of our understanding of the universe in strict mathematical terms, in mathematical elements, he says. And he says it's not a criticism outright of mathematics per se, but that seeing the universe through the lens of mathematics only is what Lewis believed contributed to the emptying of our universe as we know it today. It's like a university that is dedicated to nothing but mathematics. Uh, there is no English, there is no art, there is no music, there is no architecture, there is nothing aesthetically pleasing. It's just one math class after another, after another, after another. There's no church, there's no art, there's, no, there's nothing else other than a strict uh, curriculum of mathematics. The uni veritas of that school, the one truth of that school is mathematics. And uh, that is what Lewis is arguing uh, that has happened to us, that we live in a universe that has been reduced to its mathematical elements and everything, including ourselves and God, has been eviscerated by our continued reliance upon understanding the universe from a strictly mathematical perspective. Uh, the entire created order became disenchanted in Lewis's view. Charles Taylor, in his landmark work, A Secular Age, also observed that we have moved from, quote, an enchanted world inhabited by spirits and forces to a disenchanted one 
But perhaps more important, we have moved from a world which is encompassed within certain bounds and static to one which is vast, feels infinite, and is in the midst of an evolution spread over eons, end quote. In the modern concept of the universe, there now exists tracks of unfathomable emptiness, one bleak menagerie of infinite regressions of mostly nothing. And as this emptying took place, the heavens increasingly became accessible only to a scientific elite, while the artificial lights of modern cities began blanching the heavens of their glory. It would take the fiscal and technical resources of an omnicompetent state to ascend beyond the terrestrial fog to get a better view. Satellites and space telescopes, rather than scripture, became the lenses through which man viewed the universe. The ancient lights of the heavens increasingly became understood primarily as quantified abstractions rather than an expression of divine love and glory. Lewis's idea of this empty universe could probably be best described by the late atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, who wrote, quote, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. In Bertrand Russell's view, we are nothing but an accidental collocation of atoms who can hope to experience nothing else but unyielding despair. This is a prime example of what Lewis uh, would rightly understand as an empty universe. There is no hope, no purpose, no reason for being for mankind in this world. More recent evidence of Lewis's idea of an empty universe comes from theoretical cosmologist Dr. Sean Carroll. He has a public blog called The Preposterous Universe, in which he writes thought-provoking articles about the science of the cosmos. In a short piece from this past February of 2018 titled, Why Is There Something Rather Than Nothing?, Dr. Carroll concludes that, quote, the demand for something more, a reason why the universe exists at all, is a relic piece of metaphysical baggage we would be better off to discard, end quote. But this is not something that comes from the universe itself. Dr. Carroll's claim is itself metaphysical. There's nothing in the science of the cosmos that gives him this conclusion. And it is, I believe, something that Lewis would definitely recognize as a fruit of an empty universe. In such an empty universe, we are no longer even permitted to ask the why questions of its existence. But that seems to go against the warp and woof of our very humanity. We are by nature curious and want to know why it's all here. So we hope to offer a corrective with that. We want to go back and see, with C.S. Lewis, we want to go back and see where did we go wrong? How can we go back and recapture the glory of God that the heavens are regularly declaring? The prophet Isaiah declared long ago, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And so come along with us today on this special Oxford edition of Good Heavens with our very special guest, who we will introduce here in just a moment, and lift your eyes up on high again and look to the heavens and see and be reminded of the glory of God that has been above us since time immemorial, reminding us of his love and faithfulness. And so we hope this episode today will help you to recapture that wonder and to, uh, to go back to the roots of where uh, C.S. Lewis believed modern astronomy began and to see where we went wrong and 
to basically repent, to return to where we lost that glory to recapture it one more time. So thanks for joining us on this edition of Good Heavens, and we hope you enjoy the broadcast. Well, welcome to a special edition of Good Heavens, a podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dan. Wayne is doing research right now and uh, on something we will be talking about in the future. Uh, But in the meantime, I have a very special guest who has traveled all the way from Oxford University to be on Good Heavens. Actually, it's not the only reason he's come to the States, but uh, I'm certainly glad and blessed uh, to have uh, Dr. Michael Ward with us on Good Heavens today. We're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis and the Empty Universe. Well, uh, some of you may or may not know who Dr. Ward is, but let me just give you a rundown of our special guest's credentials. He is the Senior Research Fellow at Blackfriars Hall at Oxford Uh, University of Oxford and the professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University in Texas, where I met him. Uh, Professor Ward is the author of the best-selling and award-winning Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis on Oxford University Press. He is the co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis and the Cambridge University Press and presenter of the BBC television documentary The Narnia Code, directed by the BAFTA award-winning filmmaker Norman Stone. On the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death, Dr. Ward had the privilege of unveiling a permanent national memorial to him in Poets' Corner, Westminster Abbey, London. Michael studied English at Oxford, theology at Cambridge, and has a Ph.D. in divinity from the University of St. Andrews. And for three years in the 1990s, he worked as a resident warden of the Kilns, Lewis's Oxford home. He has been described by the Times of London as the foremost living Lewis scholar, He is much in demand as a public speaker. In the UK, he has spoken, among many other places, at the Royal Observatory, Greenwich, the home of British astronomy. He has lectured in almost 40 of the 50 American states. And uh, today, we welcome him to Good Heavens. Well, welcome to Good Heavens, Michael. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Dan. I'm very pleased to be with you. This is amazing. We are at, uh, (coughs) just to give folks a, a heads up of where we are, we are in the conference center of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, because you are here to talk about uh, Lewis's vision of the universe. We also have a Hubble Space Telescope astronomer coming tonight, mm-hmm. and we've been planning this for quite some time, and I'm so glad that it's coming together, so thank you for coming. Uh, but we are in the lobby, in case you hear any background noise. We're actually in the lobby of the conference center, and uh, today I thought, Dr. Ward, we'd talk about, uh, Michael, we'd talk about um, what Lewis meant, he, the, the essay, of the empty universe, why mm. that is pertinent for us today, uh, pertinent for us today, what it meant, and how he addressed that problem. And uh, so if you can give us a little background about uh, the essay and what Lewis's cosmological vision was in his time. Yeah, well, some background to that particular essay um, would, I think, start with the fact that Lewis was an academic. Not everybody realizes that he was a very distinguished literary historian and literary critic because people mostly know him for his fiction, like the Narnia books, and his Christian apologetics, like mere Christianity. And unless you happen to be a specialist in English literary history, you wouldn't necessarily know that Lewis spent 30 years of his life teaching at Oxford and finished his career as the first professor of medieval renaissance english at cambridge and he was a vastly learned academic with a broad knowledge of pretty much the entire sweep of english literary history or european literary history Um, and the biggest book he ever wrote was his english literature in the 16th century excluding drama and I know when I studied under you, I read that whole thing. Did you? Yes. That's impressive. <laughs> well, you encouraged it's, me to do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a great book, but it is 700 pages of yeah. pretty dense literary history. But I mention it because it opens that book with a 15-page discussion of the new astronomy that came in in the 16th century, thanks to Nicholas Copernicus and his theory of the heliocentric universe. And Lewis, being a a literary historian, wanted to see the effects that that new astronomical, that new cosmological vision had upon the literature of the period. So just to explain explain really briefly, the Copernican heliocentrism was the idea that the sun 
and not the Earth was at the center of the solar system. Exactly, yeah. Until Copernicus, everyone had pretty much believed that the Earth was static and central, and it was surrounded by a series of concentric spheres, crystalline hollow globes, each sphere with its own planet and each planet with its own set of influences that it would shed upon the Earth and upon people and even the, the, the metals in Earth's crust. And that was the accepted cosmological model until, I think it was 1546, that Copernicus published his book on the revolutions of the heavenly bodies. Mm-hmm. And he theorizes, actually, no, the sun is the center. We go around the sun. The sun doesn't go around us. And his theory was later proved to be correct by Galileo and Kepler at the start of the 17th century when the telescope was invented. And Lewis, uh, we, we call that revelation the Copernican revolution. Mm-hmm. But I remember reading in that the intro of his work on English literature that that really wasn't the revolution that we have come to understand it in terms of when it happened in the 16th century and 17th century in terms of when Copernicus came out with the work. It really didn't start fires and Mm. kings didn't lose their heads. Mm. It really wasn't as revolutionary as we've read it. I mean, in terms of our understanding of the cosmos, but Mm. Lewis, I understand, did not think that was the genuine revolution. There was something else that was more revolutionary than than the, the heliocentrism, or did I read this wrong? Well, the Copernican Revolution, so-called, as you say, was not immediate. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He published his book in 1546, but Shakespeare, who was writing at the end of the 16th and the start of the 17th century, writes his plays almost entirely from the presupposition that the geocentric model is still the operative model. Mm-hmm. So it took a long time to trickle down to affect the man in the street, or, or you know, not just the man in the street, but you know the playwright in the theatre. Yes. Uh, so he concludes that actually the Copernican Revolution didn't really have any uh, effect upon the literature of the 16th century, mm. but it did eventually have a huge effect upon the 17th and 18th and subsequent centuries. So it wasn't an immediate revolution. It was something that took time to... Yeah, it was a kind of tipping point, a a watershed moment. We were now, in a sense, Copernicus was bringing us down the other side of the mountain. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Lewis found that, uh, because 16th century was his his, the area of his expertise in terms of literature and understanding uh, English literature. So he has a thought about this, though, in terms of the revolution that that helped bring Copernicus's idea to, to fruit, to fruition, was the introduction of understanding, the, the discovery maybe, of understanding the universe mathematically. Can you talk a little bit about what he thought about that? Well, yes. He says um, that there was, uh, accompanying this change in our map of space, there was a, a, a kind of methodological revolution that, the, that was verifying that change. And that methodological revolution was uh, an increasing reliance upon mathematics mm. to unlock the, the mysteries of the universe. Um, and a, a mathematical model that was increasingly understood by means of a, a kind of mechanical paradigm mm. This is one of the things he, he points out in his 16th century volume, that at the, at the start of Kepler's career, Kepler would describe the, the movements of the planets by reference to their anima motrices, their, their motive spirits. But by the end of his career, Kepler was describing the movements of the planets mechanically by reference to metaphors drawn from mechanics, from things which aren't animated they're not alive the numbers are uh, the descriptions become quantified uh, and lose their essence their life their spirit yeah that's right that you can start i mean not that kepler of course had the internal combustion engine to work with but, no <laughs> uh, and you know newton's mechanics hadn't come along by this point either right but but by a mechanical paradigm lewis is is basically talking about a, a way of speaking which is impersonal, functional, lifeless, 
inorganic, mm. not animated. So um, you can't anymore talk in in the post-Copernican world about the planets moving, as it were, by analogy with, say, a bird seeking its nest mm. or a person going home. Those were the analogies that were used in pre-Copernican times. But now in the post-Copernican world, you're talking more about material bodies obeying laws. And so, you know, Newton will come along with his law of gravity. But that's that's language used analogically by by analogy with jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by the by the laws of a state. Because of course when a stone is released and drops to the ground, it obeys the law of gravity. But that's a way of speaking. That's not a, a literal description of what is actually occurring because the stone on being released doesn't whip out a book of statutes, turn to the, turn to the, the law that relates to his predicament and decides that he had better be a law-abiding stone <laughs> and come quiet. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's a way of speaking. Yes. So it, it, stars and planets uh, do not obey laws like people obey laws. But the, the idea of obedience, it's interesting because even that metaphor still has that anime to it, mm. that there's still that essence of a sentience about the motions mm. themselves. Well, yes. And indeed, the idea of a stone obeying a law is actually more anthropomorphic yes. than the idea of a bird seeking its nest. Right. Because birds don't obey laws either. Right. Um, but, but men do obey laws. Yeah. And now we're likening stones to men. Yes. Because they're obeying laws. Right. So it, it, in a sense, the, 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 the mechanical still cannot completely, the, the mechanical understanding of the universe still cannot completely avoid the pre-Copernican idea of anime and the spirit. That's right, yeah. So, but, but why did Lewis find this? What, what, what issue did Lewis take with the mechanical, mechanized mathematics, uh, under, mathematical understanding of the universe? It's, it's, it seems to dominate our thinking today. You can't talk about the universe except in terms of mathematics and equations. Uh, is that what Lewis was talking about, or is there something else? It's not the math that's the problem particularly, is it? It's something about how the math is understood and wielded in terms of understanding the universe. Yes, it's a kind of exaltation of mathematics as the uh, as the Rosetta Stone, as it were, that that decrypts the, the the puzzle of the universe, as if the only language we can now speak is the language of numbers. Mm. But that's a reduction to a, a less rich language than the one we were previously using. We don't need to speak only by reference to numbers. Numbers are useful, yeah. Lewis has got nothing against numbers per se. Mm-hmm. All, he, all he's saying is, can, can the whole of reality be described numerically? Yes. No, it can't. Yeah. It would be like uh, trying to understand us simply by our age, maybe our birthday, our social security numbers, our height and weight, mm. that after a while we would, we would certainly tire of just being identified numerically. Exactly. There's far more to us than yeah. just, just a numerical value. I am a name, not a number. Yes. It's prisoners who are referred to by number. Right. Soldiers sometimes, mm. too. Yeah. So Lewis uh, is addressing this. He's not just critiquing this idea, but he's saying it, it, is, it had a devastating, overall, over the long haul, it had a devastating effect on us today. We're still breathing the air very much of that uh, mechanical, uh, mathematical universe. It mm. seems to be exactly what Lewis was afraid of in terms of um, how we understand ourselves. Is, is this what led to his essay, The Empty Universe? Is that- well, yes, uh, it, indirectly, yeah. But before we come on to the empty universe, sure. I think another sort of stepping stone to, to look at would be his his novel, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, in which the hero of the story is kidnapped and taken to Mars. And as this hero, Ransom, the protagonist, is taken to Mars, he looks out the, the window of his spaceship and he marvels at the beauty of, of what he can see. All these these planets and stars and these these majestic vistas opening left and right, um, and he reflects that he hadn't until this moment realised what a what a deleterious effect 
the word space had been having upon him. And we're used to that, very much used to it, the mm. idea of space, outer space, mm. interstellar space. Mm. It's part of our vocabulary. Mm. But it's, it's interesting how Lewis makes us focus on that word mm. and, and rethink it, right? Mm. Exactly. Ransom says that he now realizes that the word space is the wrong word. Space is a blasphemous libel for the Empyrean ocean of radiance in which he finds himself swimming. This dismal fancy of the, of the black vacuity that separates the worlds turns out to be a, a quite inadequate way of describing his experience. And so he says that older thinkers had been wiser when they referred not to space but to the heavens, the heavens that tell the glory of God. Mm. He's referring there to Psalm 19, of course. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of uh, this novel, Out of the Silent Planet, when Ransom is back on Earth, he's having a conversation with the narrator, um, and they say to each other, yes, from now on, it, we should refer to the heavens as the heavens, not as space. And if we could effect a changeover in just 10% of our readers from using the term space to using the term heavens, we would have made a start. Mm. So it's deeply, deeply ironic that publishers now refer to these, this trilogy of books as the space trilogy. <laughs> it's the wrong thing to say. It's <laughs> blasphemous. <laughs> Lewis never called it the space trilogy. And I, he would not have called it the Space Trilogy. If you're going to call it anything, you, you should call it the Ransom Trilogy after the protagonist or the Cosmic Trilogy. Or conceivably, you could even refer to it as the Heavens Trilogy or the Good Heavens Trilogy. The good Heavens. But, <laughs> good Heavens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but most people, I think most scholars are now beginning to call it the Ransom Trilogy or the Cosmic Trilogy. Okay. And, and so this was Lewis's attempt. Not, he's not just critiquing this uh, mechanical worldview. He's not just critiquing this mechanical worldview. He's offering a, a solution, a change of mind, a rethinking. Um, I think that gets into what uh, I've heard you talk about before in terms of religamenting, bring, mm. bringing back, reminding people of the heavens as a reflection of God's glory. Mm. So I, I think he he seemed to want to creatively address the question through a vehicle that was very popular at the time, correct? That's why he chose science fiction mm. as one way to address mm. this, uh, this mechanical problem that he saw pervading mm. our understanding of the universe. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, I think, one of the things he's up to in, the, in that trilogy of books. And now, that was written before Narnia. That was written in the 30s, correct? Yeah, late 30s and early 40s. Same yeah. time as The Hobbit. Uh, yeah, around that, around time. about that time. So that's Lewis's first attempt at uh, at, at fictional writing on mm. a scale like that. Mm. But he's he's creatively trying to remind people, take us out of our world, bring us into an imaginary fantasy world, so that we can come back into our world mm. with a deeper appreciation of, of of the glory that is above us. Mm. Is, is that accurate? Well, yeah, uh, but I would want to warn your listeners against any kind of pejorative associations with words like fantasy. Mm-hmm. and imaginary. Uh, those words tend to come with associations of, of make-believe, of, of just-so stories, of superstition. Mm. Uh, but properly understood, all our knowledge is imaginative. Mm-hmm. Science is an imaginative enterprise. Yes. Imagine, the imagination for Lewis is the organ of meaning, and everybody needs to work with meaningful terms, whether they're poets or scientists. Mm-hmm. The imaginary for Lewis is when the imagination runs amok, when it, when it goes off without any control upon it from the use of reason, mm. reason being, for Lewis, the natural organ of truth. Our imaginative terms need to be controlled and, and sieved and... and um, uh, analyzed with reference to rational inquiry, with 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 reference to the organ of truth. So we need to think about uh, the imagination as just as effectual in our conceptualization of the universe or anything as reason itself. That, that, that somehow reason has got this reputation as though it's somehow more clear, mm. more defined than, than the imaginative concept. I think you pointed out that the idea, the, the negative connotations that we often associate with fantasy and imagination 
uh, don't seem to – they seem to denigrate something that is a very integral organ in terms of – like modern cosmology, astronomy, imagines hypothetical situations to try to explain things. Mm. Which is what imaginative, I mean, Einstein, the late Dr. Hawking, all used their imagination to come mm. up with concepts mm. to describe the universe. Mm. And so it seems like imagination is not only not a negative thing, it's absolutely essential mm. to understanding our world. It is essential. There is no knowledge without imagination. The only question is what, um, what kinds of sets of meanings, meaningful terms, are you going to work with? Mm-hmm. Are you going to work with the meanings derived through number, through quantification? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to work with more dramatic, concrete, narrative, personal terms, such Mm -hmm. as you would find in a story? Right. A story is no less true, necessarily, than an equation. Mm -hmm. It all depends what the story is saying and how. And it all depends equally what the equation is saying. Sure. But an equation, however marvelously true it may be, is relatively thin, it's relatively narrow, it's relatively dry and desiccated as a language, which is why when we go to bed at night, we read ourselves novels and poems. We don't tend to read the periodic table of elements or the train time table. Or multiplication table. Or the multiplication table, because the numbers don't, Numbers are incredibly useful. Absolutely. We can't do much these days without reference to numbers, but they are thin. They are small, all things considered, and our life is much richer than can be captured in mere numbers. And I think a lot of times in the modern age today, especially with science, you think uh, the idea that laws and numbers are themselves, have taken upon themselves almost like a kind of causal agency mm. that the laws them so so what what makes the universe go well it's this force it's this law it's this equation mm. but numbers abstract objects like numbers and descriptions of the universe like laws are not causal mm. they describe but they mm. are not the the source from which mm. all things mm. flow mm. so that they can describe something but they can't finally do mm. anything yeah right true and likewise, neither can stories do things. But right. stories, no less than numbers, are attempts to describe the our reality th- that we see. Our theory. So Narnia is like a good equation. It, it helps us to understand reality to some degree. Mm. Yeah, but the terms of the equation in Narnia are terms that involve personalities and mm. motives mm-hmm. and drama and interaction between different personalities. Um, if you want to call it an equation, you can. But it's better to call it a story. A narrative. And better to call an equation a very, very simple story. Yeah. yeah. One aspect of, of you know, it's like a ingredients in a recipe. Mm. One third of a cup of sugar is only part of the equation of the whole cake, mm. or the pancakes or whatever it is, right? So Lewis believed that this, uh, the numerical, mathematical, mechanical understanding diminished Mm. the personality, mm. the spirit of uh, the universe. Can mm. you talk a little bit more about how he saw that and what he tried to do? To, I mean, we already talked about ransom a little bit, so he's trying to imaginably remind us and recreate our the idea in our minds that the heavens declare the glory. Mm. But what else did he do to to try to pastorally restore people's minds to understanding the glory of God? Well, um, he wrote the Narnia Chronicles. Um, we can come on to that maybe a bit later. But before we before we do that, or even get back to the empty universe essay, yes. um, just one more thing really to say about Out of the Silent Planet, uh-huh. where, where Ransom, or maybe it's Lewis as narrator, says that there is a, there's a mythology that follows in the wake of science. Mm. A mythology that follows in the wake of science. Now, that's an interesting way of putting it, because... We, we tend to like to think that science comes out of mythology, that science leaves mythology behind it uh, and mm. advances from the mythic to the factual. Yeah, right. Uh, but Lewis says, actually, no, that the, the two ways of knowing, the, the, the mythic, that is to say the narrative, and the scientific, that is to say the quantitative, they are interrelated, they're interdependent. There's a mythology that follows in the wake of science. So what, what he means there is that there was a scientific development in the 16th century, the Copernican Revolution, and that was 
an advance. That was new knowledge that was worth having. But in its wake came a whole new mythology, which was this mathematical mythology, this quantifying mythology. And by mythology he means here something which is... Um, how to put it? Questionable. It's it's um, a kind of reductive, materialistic, essentialism so the, that suggests that that numbers are now the the ultimate reality. The, the 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 mythology I think would maybe to say that the the belief in the efficacy of numbers being more exact mm. than perhaps uh, imaginative or narrative. Uh, conceptualizations of the universe well yeah but numbers are more exact in, in what they can usefully describe the mythology is when you assume that therefore all descriptions ought to I see. Yes. share in that exactitude um, that the numerical is necessarily and always the superior way of describing that's the mythology that's, that is a kind of idolatry that you erect yeah. into a, a kind of ultimate language what you have found to be a very useful language in one particular pocket of reality. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there is this quantifying tendency, and this is again what Lewis is talking about in the, uh, the, the Ransom Trilogy in the second book, Perilando, which is set on Venus. I think it is, um, Ransom says... The, the size of a thing is not the most important thing about it, necessarily. Right. Well, yeah, because then Jupiter would be the most important thing in our solar system, yes. you know, and, yes. and on and on. And how big do you have to be to be important? <laughs> Quite. And, and Betelgeuse is more important than, than, than Jupiter. Right. Yeah, exactly. Just because, just size-wise, quantification of things. Yeah. Again. And that's, yeah. Uh, that is illogical. We don't think that a a six-foot person is slightly more important than a five-foot person. Well, and that's an important point because modern cosmology, part of the, I think, part of the new myth that has come out of the Copernican revolution is this idea that because Earth is small, now we have our satellites that can take pictures of Earth from billions of miles away, we see ourselves as very small, and therefore... Uh, not only are we not the center of the solar system, we're not the center of the universe, and we are very small. Therefore, our significance is utterly diminished, if not uh, mm. removed altogether. You mm. hear that a lot in the modern cosmological mm. uh, models mm. that uh, we Copernicus dethroned us, mm. uh, took away our significance and our, our central, our place of centrality in mm. the universe. Mm. And do you do you find that that might be the outflow, one of the mythical outflows of of the revolution of Copernicus or is Lewis? touch upon that the significance of mankind yeah he does that, that is another aspect of it that um, we're no longer at the center so we so we think um, but we assume that that which is central must be more important mm. if we are now on the periphery on the circumference then we must necessarily be less important mm. but the, these are not lot necessarily necessary or logical deductions mm-hmm. from the Copernican revolution you can't necessarily assume that that which is on the edge is less important. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a value judgment. Right. The universe doesn't tell you that. No. The, the numbers don't tell you yeah. that. Likewise, you know, the, I was just talking about quantification. We, we tend to think that big is beautiful. The bigger, the better. Uh, but I think Lewis's underlying point is, is not what we do with the numbers themselves, but... The, the the sheer value we put on quantification itself as the ultimate source of, yeah. of knowledge. So you know, if you describe something as very very small, that's still a quantifying step you're taking. Mm-hmm. Quantification is a fine thing to do, but it's not necessarily telling you the all of reality. There are many other things besides quantity, mm-hmm. and I think this is one of Lewis's points with regard to what he talks about with respect to Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo um, becoming prisoners almost of a, of a mechanical paradigm. They find the mechanical paradigm useful for describing certain pockets of reality and then they then extend that or assume that that will cover all of reality. Mm. And that's, that's a full step. That, that's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow because 
when we want to understand the reality of a thing, we don't just want to know things which can be measured. How big is that star? What's it made of? How far away is it? How quickly is it moving? Those are all good questions, but they're not the only questions. Yeah, what is it entirely? How did it get there? Why is it even there to begin with? Yeah, why is it there? Why was it made? Why does it move? For whom was it made? Who made it? Those questions of person and purpose are questions that we want to know the answers to as well. But they can't be answered numerically. Mm -mm. I I just read recently from a, a, a cosmologist, a popular cosmologist who writes for the general public, Claiming that the why questions, why is the star even there, why is the universe even here, mm. are, uh, are non-essential and shouldn't even be asked. Mm. But that's a kind of reductionism that, that even the universe doesn't tell you. That's a, philo- mm. that's a philosophical mm. uh, leap. Mm. It's, it's not a scientifically derived leap to say that we shouldn't answer, that we shouldn't ask those questions. Mm. But because science can't answer them, they tend to dismiss the kinds of questions that really get to the heart of our existence, I think. Exactly. Those, those are the most interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can say Betelgeuse is a billion miles in diameter, but I think it was Samuel Johnson who had remarked to a scientist friend of his, you teach the, your daughters the diameter of planets and, why, and wonder why they don't wish to spend time with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that's the case, that we want to know more than, than the numerical identity of the planets and stars. We want to know the, the, the why concept. Yeah. The, the, why are we here? Why am I staring at this? And how is it that we can possibly conceive this? Mm. Uh, I think it was Einstein who remarked that the most remarkable thing about the universe is that it is understandable, that it Mm. is intelligible. Mm. Um, But the why questions still haunt us, don't they? And Lewis tried to fill that hunger and that void through what he Mm. did, didn't Mm. he? He did. But I think it's it's telling that many scientists of, of an atheistical bent, as you just said, want to bracket out those why questions. Well, because science can't answer those questions, therefore they're not questions worth asking. They're not value. Uh, <laughs> that's completely to beg the, the question at stake. Right. What, 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 what equation gave you that, that idea yeah. about equations? Absolutely. You can't get there from there. Yeah, because science is not the only form of knowledge. There are other forms of knowledge too. There is philosophical knowledge. There is... Relational knowledge. Relational knowledge. There is emotional knowledge, there is theological knowledge, there is psychological knowledge, none of which can easily be represented mathematically, but no. which are telling us useful, good, true, beautiful things. Right. So it's important to distinguish that Lewis is not putting, he's not diminishing the practice practical aspects of mathematics. He's not against understanding certain quantitative aspects about Mm. reality. Mm. He is critiquing, criticizing the idea that uh, mathematical, mechanical reality is the best and or the only way to know things about our physical world. Absolutely. Got it. So this whole approach of his is is usefully summarized in that exchange you have in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader between Eustace and the star character. Ramandu. Ramandu. In our world, Eustace says, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And the reply comes, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. And then I love it because Lewis just leaves you there wanting to know well, tell us, Ramandu. Yeah, what you are then. <laughs> what if, are you? If you aren't reducible to what your constituent components are. Right, right. Now, can you briefly, I know this may be a little bit of an aside, people sometimes think that Lewis is doing astrology or some kind of introducing children to New Age mythology and that stars are people. Um, but can you explain the background, at least briefly, about what Lewis is doing there with the Ramandu character and Eustace's exchange? Mm. Well, I think one of the things he's doing is um, giving a kind of imaginative expression to the what the psalmist says in psalm 19 the heavens are telling the glory of god the heavens are telling the glory of god but the heavens don't have mouths they don't speak they don't have larynxes so how can they tell anything mm-hmm. you know if we're being literalistic about it mm. and of course the heavens are telling by by means other than literal vocalization mm. they tell through their beauty Mm. They tell through the effect they have upon the human imagination. In other words, they can be described as a kind of angel. An angel is a messenger. An angelus, a messenger. So the the heavens, the stars, can be conceived not improperly as angelic beings. Mm. I mean, indeed, the scriptures do seem to relate stars to angels. Mm. That is that is biblical, the mm. illusions that they make. Stars and people and angels all seem to have that moniker. Yeah. Um, 
So that's an interesting point. And it's, it's, it's also fascinating, too, because I'm thinking, okay, so you're concerned maybe a child is, is, is thinking that the stars have a personality or whatever, but, but that's not at all what Lewis is doing. He's opening our minds to the idea that the star is something else than its material composition. Mm. And so it, it, it almost would be more detrimental to introduce a child to the idea that stars are just mm. a flaming ball of gas. Mm. That's the... Hmm. That's the error Lewis is trying to correct. It is. That's it, it, to, to indoctrinate. I mean, when you get books for astronomy for children uh, from Barnes & Noble or any bookseller, hmm. they are filled. There's, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of the personality of these things. Hmm. Everything is mathematically derived, hmm. me- mechanically explained. Hmm. You know, stars have a heart of a nuclear furnace, hmm. right? Hmm. And so children get this idea that the stars exist as we have just been talking about, without any reference to a sentient creator. Mm. And so they don't see the personality in the stars themselves. Mm. They just see the mathematics mm. and the laws. Mm. So, so Lewis is offering that corrective to children mm. and saying, hey, a star is more than a flaming ball of gas. Because mm. Eustace, in the beginning of the Don Treader, we are told he likes books of information. Mm. Right? <laughs> With fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools and, and grain elevators and yeah. governments and drains, right? He loves <laughs> he li- the, he likes the facts, right? Yes, and, he, he liked beetles as long as they were dead and pinned on a card. Right. So this, this is kind of a representation of, of modernity's understanding of creation, do you think, in some sense? It is, yeah. As long as it's dead and pinned. And controlled. Yeah, yeah because yeah. then we can dominate it and we can use it for our own very often selfish purposes, uh, hence the ecological crisis that we are up against right now. Right, right. And I, I think there's probably not a, it's not a, a coincidence that he uses the word pinned. The Beatles are dead and pinned on a card. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, it's not actually, if you, if you know your Lewis intimately, it's not ac- actually a huge stretch from a dead beetle pinned on a card to a dead Jew pinned on a cross. Mm. That is what we like to do to things because we are sinful. We like to kill things and think thereby that we have controlled them. We pin them. And I think it's almost, Michael, like mathematics for many has become a means to manipulate, control, and explain the universe in a way that we can pin it. We Mm. can pin down what a star is. Mm. But imagine pinning, trying to, little humans, not that being little is a big deal, but <laughs> not saying that, but, but humans looking at a star many, many light years away that's a billion miles in diameter, thinking that we have defined all that it is mm. uh, when we know so little about what's actually going on out there. The Hubble Space Telescope was the, this Betelgeuse was the first star that the telescope imaged, and it was like a uh, a fried egg, mm. and it's still a mystery to astronomers in terms of exactly the behavior of the star. Mm. So, I, I, but, but getting back to what Lewis was doing with Eustace and Ramandu, I think that that it opens up the imagination. It, mm. it causes us to think that there is more to the universe, mm. more to creation than just the mathematical thing. Yeah. So, so right there in Ramandu and Eustace's exchange, he's dealing with. Uh, the after effects, the myths that follow the science. That's right. He's offering that corrective to, yeah. the, to, the, to the modern reductionist mythos. Yeah. Just because, the, just because it has been shown that the Earth goes around the sun doesn't necessarily mean that we can conclude that stars are merely huge balls of flaming gas. Mm. That, again, is a non sequitur. Right. That is the mythology following in the wake of science. Yes. Those are the non-scientific or the unscientific effects, mm-hmm. consequences of a scientific advance. And you don't need to adopt them. You don't need to embrace them. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You know, there's, a, there's a paradigm shift from the, the pre-Copernican to the post-Copernican to the Newtonian to the Einsteinian. All, all these paradigm shifts in, in astronomy and cosmology represent advances in our knowledge. But Lewis's implication is, and, and he can say this because he's a fantastically well-read historian who understands the paradigms of different ages he, he his implication is that humanity advances in one field at the same time that it retreats in another mm. or at any rate the advantages you get from adopting a one new paradigm are accompanied very often by by disadvantages in, in the new paradigm. 
you know, we, we were just we were talking earlier, weren't we, about uh, the idea of stones obeying the law of gravity, mm. mm-hmm. and that's a different way of speaking from a bird seeking its nest. Yes, um, and in some ways, the the new legal statutory kind of language is is an advance. It it improves in certain respects, but it diminishes diminishes in other respects. Yes, it does. Because it becomes more anthropomorphic. Mm-hmm. It becomes more related peculiarly to human beings. And there are some secular cosmologists and physicists who are aware of the anthropomorphic nature of the law metaphor. Mm. And they don't like it mm. uh, because it is, again, it, it seems to beg the question about the sentience behind the laws. Mm. You know? So it is, it is disquieting for, for the materialist reductionist who wishes to obliterate personality from the universe because you're still finding yourself uh, adrift in a godless universe still using anthropomorphic language mm. to describe what's going <laughs> on above us. You can't get rid of it. No, and actually you, you shouldn't really try. And Lewis wouldn't want you to try. He, he, he would want you to be as anthropomorphic, anthropological as possible. Uh-huh. Because anthropos means man, and man is the measure of all things. Why do we say that as Christians? Because Christ Jesus is the logos. He's, he, is the, the, he is what makes the universe intelligible, partly because he creates it but partly also because he fulfills it in the person of Jesus. And he sustains it in Colossians. It says that all things were created by him and for him Mm. and are sustained by him. Mm. Uh, The Hebrew says that uh, he sustains the universe. He sustains everything by the word Mm. of his power. Absolutely. So it is a a logos-driven cosmos. Mm. I mean, that's John's wording in Mm. the Greek in Mm. John 1. Mm. The logos created the cosmos. Mm. And the, the, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it. But mm. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. Yeah. So it is, a, it is a man-centered, man with a capital M, mm. universe. Yeah. And the astronomer, the modern reductive, possibly atheistical, secularist rationalist, who is wanting to evacuate the, the universe of spiritual significance, runs up against a problem that his own ability to speak and think is itself testimony to a spiritual reality which cannot be reduced to (laughs) mere quantity and matter. Right. If you eradicate God, you end up emptying yourself Mm. uh, and the ability to reason about the universe. Mm. Why would, if your your material carbon if the, the stuff in your bodies came from supernova as science tells us today, that we are star stuff, that we are the, the carbon in our bodies came from long dead suns. Why would we think that we could trust any kind of conceptualization, any kind of sentience, any kind of mm. rationality mm. that would have accidentally, like Bertrand Russell said, the accidental collocation of atoms? Why should that be trusted mm. as a basis for our, for our knowledge about who we are in the mm. universe? Yeah. Uh, and the, the despiritualizing, the disenchanting of, say, the stars and the planets. If it, if it goes unchecked, eventually despiritualizes and disenchants the astronomer who is looking at those stars and planets. Mm. And so he, he ends up evacuating himself. He ends up cutting off the branch on which he's sitting. And that's why in this essay, which we finally now get to, The Empty Universe, Lewis says, you know, with tongue-in-cheek, um, the, the, the history of the, of the progress of Western thought over the last four or five hundred years, uh, has has led us to the to the realization that almost no one has been making linguistic mistakes about almost nothing. <laughs> and today, and that when did by he, and large that is the only thing that has ever happened. He says. <laughs> when, now, when did he write uh, Empty Universe? Uh, it was fairly late, I think, in, in the sixties, uh, late fifties. Yeah, he died in nineteen sixty-three. And today, in modern cosmology, the people are all. Uh, all aglow with the idea of a universe from nothing, the idea philosophically, uh, the questions in certain theoretical corners of theoretical physics and cosmology suggest, did the universe emanate Mm. from absolutely nothing? Mm. And there's been a lot of bugaboo back and forth about what does an atheist materialist cosmologist mean by nothing? Mm. Because it's not a scientific Mm. but a philosophical idea that Mm. Aquinas addressed a long time ago, you know, Something can't come from nothing. Mm. But yet this is part and parcel of what underlies some 
cosmologies today. Mm. The mm. idea of how did our universe begin? Where did it come from? Mm. The theoretical constructs of the multiverse and the many universes or mm. an eternal universe, all using uh, all, all of the imaginative attempts at trying to circumvent the idea of there being a God who created it. Mm. But it's interesting. If you remove God, you still find the need for something to be eternal. Mm. Either the universe has to be eternal or there has to be an eternal or an infinite past or a, an infinite multiverse that just keeps generating and regenerating. But either way, you remove God and you still have, it seems like, the burden of um, needing something like eternity or infinity to explain the cosmos. Yeah, if you if you want a satisfactory explanation. And I think this is one of the reasons why modernity has run its course philosophically and that's why we are now living in the postmodern world because that modernistic approach which has been excessively rationalistic i mean rationalistic is, is one of those very loaded terms which we'd need a whole podcast just to explain <laughs> itself right. but let's just use that word for now rationalistic and quantificatory that that whole approach has turned out to be a dead end yeah so that, that doesn't explain enough it, it's not sufficient to to give us a a sense that we are adequately describing reality and that that's why we are now living in the postmodern world because postmodernity is a little less reductionistic i mean it has its own problems mm -hmm. of course um and in a way postmodernity is an attempt to get back to the sort of situation that lewis and indeed tolkien were were advertising, were promoting themselves, namely the the pre-modern, the, the 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 medieval, the classical, had a more integrated, a more balanced, a more holistic approach than the ones which have succeeded it. And that's why, to bring us back to um, the 16th century volume for a moment, Lewis says there that in that period, astronomy and astrology are best described as a single discipline. You shouldn't really distinguish astrology from astronomy before the 17th century. Why? Because astrologers and astronomers were were asking two sets of questions, and they, and they were very often the same people. And it's interesting to see how the, those two words have, have developed in the centuries since. Astronomy, literally star law, L-A-W, mm -hmm. astronomers... Astronomy is now the respectable, hard-headed science, uh, which you can take degrees in and get careers in, all well and good. Astrology, literally the study of the stars, mm -hmm. Aster Logos. has become something nonsensical or superstitious. It's, it's just rubbish. It's, it's those silly horoscopes in the back pages of magazines. Mm -hmm. no, nobody trusts astrology unless they're very credulous and naive. But that bifurcation of the two disciplines hasn't been to the advantage of either. No, because we've lost meaning on the one side. We've lost meaning in both of them. Yeah. You've lost, well, you've lost quality in astronomy. Mm -hmm. You've lost quantity in astrology. And you need both quality and quantity, because we are both spirit and matter. Uh this bifurcation is a is an evacuation of the of the cent central unifying chest. There, there's another term from Lewis's works. Getting into abolition of man. Getting into the abolition of man. The yeah. chest being that which unites the cerebral man with the visceral man. It unites the head and the belly. And the fact that we can no longer talk about a unified discipline which encompasses both astrology and astronomy is a bad situation. It's, it's, a, it's a polarization. And there's so many negative connotations with astrology, almost like you said at the beginning, with uh, something like fantasy and uh, uh, imaginative writing. Fantasy and imaginative writing has negative connotations, and astrology mm. kind of comes behind that in, in a sense, and it, it's meaningless to people. Mm. Um, and it's, there's so many diverse points of view about it. It's just like you said. It's, it's just in the back of magazines. It's, it, there's, there's absolutely no... Ability, people can't see the the, the, the connections. Mm. They don't see the chest is gone. Mm. You know, we make men without chests, and mm. we castrate the geldings and bid mm. them to be fruitful. Mm. Uh, and so there's this necessity, it seems like, and Lewis understood this well in what he did, the, the re-ligamenting mm. of astrology proper 
with astronomy, the idea of meaning, the idea of, of meaning, quantity, and quality coming mm. together. And, and Lewis tried to pastorally, imaginatively address that, mm. correct? That's right. Yeah, he's always wanting to, to rebind, to re-ligament, to find the, the unifying central liaison officer between the two departments of our nature, between the spirit and the matter, between the, the meaning and the fact. Mm-hmm. In The em- Empty Universe, he talks about how this reductive tendency results in a universe which is all fact and no meaning. So it's like Eustace's book. Just That's books right. of inf- It's yeah, just become yeah. a big, giant glob of information. Yeah, which has no truth or wisdom about it. It's mm. just data points. Data points, right. Uh, all fact and no meaning. He says we, we reduce ourselves to a dog-like mentality. Have you ever noticed, he says, that when you point to a bit of food on the floor, trying to get your dog to wolf it up, that rather than, the, rather than following your finger and going to the, the piece of meat on the ground, all the dog does is he sniffs your finger. <laughs> because dogs don't understand pointing. They don't understand indication mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm. They, they see the finger, but they don't see what the finger means. Yes, yes. It means look over there. Right. Now, that, you, we can induce that kind of dog-like mentality upon ourselves, if we like, if, if, we, re, if we think that the, the best and only language is quantific, quantified. Right. What about quality? Now, of course, you know, every, hard-headed scientists will want to remind us, quite properly, that there is an equal and opposite error of being all meaning but no fact. Yes. Of yes. being all spirit and no matter. So Christians are not Gnostics. They, are not, they don't believe in the esoteric the whole point of christianity is that's an incarnational religion and that matter matters body's body yeah yeah so obviously we need both but i think lewis's point is that the the history of the last four or five hundred years has been a a drift towards excessive fact excessive quantification excessive materiality at the expense of all those other things, of quality, of spirit, and of meaning. Well, and it's interesting, Michael, because uh, the telescopes and the satellites uh, that we have today are downloading an unending stream of data Mm. from the heavens. Mm. It's online. You can access it to the public. But what what is lacking, as you said earlier, is, is the wisdom. Uh, the meaning of this data. It's just a large, huge body of a huge volume of data. Mm. But what does it collectively point to? Is it just, okay, here's a planet, here's some dust, here's a rock, uh, here's, here's a diameter of a planet, here's, here's the circumference of a sun. Mm. Uh, does this mean anything beyond that? Mm. Or is this, are we just collecting numerical data about uh, orbs in space? Yeah. What, what are we doing that for? I know. It, it, uh, <laughs> it's very interesting. The word data, or you say data, you data, say data, da- data yeah. in English, yeah. in England English. It may be data. Uh, <laughs> um, data means literally th- those things which are given. A datum is a given thing. How about that? Uh, think of the dative case in Latin. Yes. Um, so we are concentrating on the givens without any reference to the idea of a giver uh. or the recipient of the gift, namely ourselves. That's neat because, the, 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 because that, that's the spirit. I mean, we can get into this a little later, but the, the, the spirit of... Uh, the medieval spirit of, of Jove was gift-giving. Mm. As, as astrologically understood prior to the 16th century, the mild and meadowy influence of Jove, one of its chief influences was that of a gift-giver. Mm. Is that correct? That, that's how Lewis understood it? Yeah. And what, what is a gift without a giver or a recipient? Mm. It's just a, a thing on a table wrapped up in Christmas wrapping. It has no meaning un- unless you have the, the, the North Pole and the South Pole, as it were, at top and bottom of it. Now, Lewis, it's important, I think, to point out to some of the listeners who may be unfamiliar with this. Lewis was not uh, <coughs> believe he didn't determine in the ast- he didn't believe in the astronomical determinism of uh, what developed after the 16th century in terms of 
using the planets to define the future. We're not talking about anything like that. No. Correct? Yeah, he, That's right. He, yeah. was, he was going back to the original, uh, I think it was in what essay when he says, what do I remind you of? Mm. Right? That the, the planets were great spiritual symbols for Lewis. They were pointers. They were messengers. Mm. Like this morning, I got out. It was a beautiful dark sky over where I live in my barn. The brightest star in the sky this morning was Jupiter. I got out my telescope and saw three of the moons and Jupiter's stripes. Mm. And uh, it was really, it was a gift. Mm. It was beautiful. Mm. It was God's way to me of reminding me that, you know, one little way in which I see creation, I see God's grace and gift giving reflected in the planets. Mm. Not, not that I'm predicting the future, no. but when you think of it in terms of taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, like Paul did with the poets on Mars Hill, mm. then you can look at the planets through Christ and you can see them as a reminder mm. of, of his bearing with you. Mm. You know, his faithfulness of his new covenant is mm. like the fixed order of the heavens. Mm. So Lewis was trying to do that better than I could there, but he was, he was trying to do that. He was trying to reorient people's minds towards mm. God's glory, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's a, a beautiful picture, and um, perhaps we should end on that. Um, yes, because we, um, we, we've got other things to do but, today. <laughs> but the, but the, the, the picture of you looking up this morning at Jupiter and being grateful and and marveling at, at the beauty and the, the visibility of this thing that was awesome. millions of miles away, isn't that a, a fantastic picture of the very thing we're talking about? That there is the gift, Jupiter. There is the recipient, you. And... In your gratitude, which connects gift with recipient, we see the presence of God in that gratitude which he has sort of endowed you with. That, that indicates, that indicates, there's the, the pointing finger, mm-hmm. the, the divine presence yes. in your life, in the life of the cosmos, which links both you and the planet. Yes, I think that's a great way to end it, sir. And uh, I want to thank you so much for taking this time out of your incredibly packed U.S. world tour. <laughs> you, you go nonstop. You were telling me in the car today yep. how much uh, there's just no rest for you. No rest for the wicked. N- yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're, you're going, going, going. So thank you for taking this time to, uh, to talk with us. And I uh, want to encourage everybody to get Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Or if you're not quite ready for that uh, multi-page work, there's a lesser, a smaller, and easier introduction to it, right? Called uh, the, the Narnia Code. The Narnia Code. Would you recommend that for people that are completely unfamiliar with this subject? Yeah. If you want to limber up, if you want to ease yourself into it with a relatively short, relatively accessible introductory version, then read the Narnia Code and then progress to Planet Narnia, which is a, a, a 250-page book with lots of footnotes. <laughs> it's a great book. <laughs> And that's why I'm. That's why it brought, brought us together. I read it, and I was like, I want to go study doctor, with Dr. Ward. So thank you, sir, and thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Good Heavens. We hope you've been blessed by it. <laughs>